Well, good morning, everyone. My name is David, if we haven't met. Um, my privilege to open the Bible with us this morning. So uh, as we do that, let's ask for God's help. Let's pray. Our Father, you've brought us together, and we pray you would continue that work this morning, not only bringing us, but speaking to us clearly, addressing us. Please remove any blindness, any resistance we might have to your life-giving word. And we ask for that help this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've been following, um, as you can these days, um, with uh, modern technology, following the war in Ukraine on and off um, over the weeks. And uh, in recent months, this, the battle for Bakhmut seems so tragic and so senseless to those watching on this relatively insignificant city, but both sides pouring resources on it as a a flashpoint in the battle. Putin sends tens of thousands of pretty much untrained troops, hoping to overwhelm them with sheer force and blood. This smaller, better prepared force from Ukraine. One report said that for every one Ukrainian soldier dying, there are seven Russians being driven against their will into their death. In this and other battles around Ukraine, the master, in this case Putin, uh, the cause, the methods, the outcomes, the, the fruit seem unworthy of human lives, worse than pointless and mad. So much of it even seems what we would call evil. What's shocking about the Bible passage that we're looking at this morning is that until we serve God and his righteous ways, we realise we too are serving or were serving an unworthy master, an unworthy cause, with unworthy methods, bearing unworthy fruit, results. What we think of as normal Aussie life is not as good as our nation thinks. And what we, the church, think of as oh so normal must catch on fast if we're to stop following our old master's script and engage in this fruitless, even evil realm. This is what's at stake as we learn what it is to abandon Satan's side and to choose God's side. To go from habitually eating fruit God says not to eat and habitually trusting God through our obedience. Paul's questions in Romans 6 and 7 show that good and evil are not just moral choices Christians make, but they represent a spiritual world much bigger lighter and darker than we imagine. And so the question again, having been forgiven, having been declared righteous forever, are we Christians now free to sin? That's the title of today's talk, free to sin? Question mark. Such an important question. How are Christians to view sin? Paul has been addressing it from the start of chapter 6, verse 1, if you have your Bibles in front of you. He raised the question there, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Or in the old King James Version, God forbid. Or here to begin today's reading, the similar question, chapter 6, 15. What then, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. You know, when churchgoers start to grasp the wonderful news that Jesus is our righteousness not relying on our own works anymore to make it to God. Then the next question is mixed with a bit of disbelief. So are you saying our 
sins will never be counted against us? Wouldn't that mean we can sin and it doesn't matter? We've got a license to sin. I'm excited when I hear this question going around our church as I have in recent weeks through home groups and in conversations. It means Romans is doing its work. It means the completely free nature of God's righteousness, his gift of eternal life, is reaching our hearts and our minds and it's dawning on us what this means. So what's Paul's answer? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? First then in chapter 6 verses 15 to 23, if you're following in your outlines, Paul speaks of mastery. Who's your master, Christian? And Paul's point here is that we're servants not of who we think we're serving, but more realistically, we're servants of the ones we're, the one we're actually serving. So what's the point being called a Christian if you're actually serving someone other than God? Verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Put like that, Christian Paul might ask, who's your master? And that should answer the sin question for you. Who's your master? Are you asking if you can sin for a friend? Or is that your question? Are you a servant of sin that leads to death or a servant of obedience to Jesus that leads to righteousness? This question isn't meant to be a difficult one. But in case we're facing temptation, and temptation can be very strong, in case we're wondering if we can have a foot in each camp, a forgiven sinner who loves to sin, Paul provides the compelling reasoning in verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. That is, I think he's saying he knows the Christians. You have a developing heartfelt love for Jesus and his gospel. You don't live perfectly, but you have an earnest desire to follow his pattern of teaching. Or verse 18, you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Now, slavery in Paul's world could be quite a dignified role, unlike the thoughts of slavery today, where it tends to be very bad. Uh, back then, some of the slaves didn't want to leave their master. It was a, a wage that was less than a, a paid staff worker, but a wage nonetheless. We just have to keep that in mind when we see slavery through the New Testament. But this strong image of slavery is still a strong one, and it shouldn't be lost on us. Peter, James, Paul, they start their letters describing themselves as slaves of the Lord Jesus. Bond servants, servants as sometimes it's translated. And this mindset made them great and devoted servants throughout their lifetime, their self-identity. Or remember Peter's words to Jesus when uh, the crowds were leaving Jesus and Jesus said, are you going to go as well? And Peter said, where else have we to go when you alone have words of eternal life? You're our man, we serve you. To the end, where else have we to go than to choose good over evil every time, every hour of the day, every day of the week? If living for God is called being a slave to righteousness, then sign us up. Where else good is there to go but to God and his righteousness? I remember hearing of a wayward Christian priest, I don't know of what denomination, what background, in America who after many years of church life 
said that he was going to take a year off God. A year off God? Yes, a godless life for a year. Is that what he means? I don't know. Does the Bible say, go away from me and I will give you rest? Doesn't it say, come to me? If God isn't master, self and Satan always fill the void. If an Israelite left the walls of Jerusalem and left Israel, it was never into neutral territory. This priest perhaps got so busy he lost sight of God's grace. He didn't draw on God's peace, God's joy, God's rest, if he thinks he needs to rest from God. He didn't realise that to flee from God is to embrace evil. And to embrace God is to flee evil. To flee God is to embrace evil. To embrace God is to flee evil. You used to be slaves to sin. That's what Paul says in verse 17. You've been set free from sin, verse 18, and have become now slaves to righteousness. Paul wants this simple choice so impressed on us that he's about to push it further. He knows sin is so deceitful. A friend of mine decided they wanted to move out with one person and move in with another person. That's just common in our culture. Or the idea, I need to start putting myself first as though that's the secret to life, or that's going to make me happy. Or if I do as I want with the freedom God gives me, I'll be happy. And God wants me to be happy, right? And therefore I can do whatever I want. But if we use that line to do what we want because God wants to make me happy, then we end up doing things that make us deeply unhappy, miserable. Instead of the obedience, verse 17, that is righteousness towards true happiness and freedom. Sin is so deceptive. And so Paul isn't rushing his point. He's bending down to persuade the church as toddlers, verse 19, because of your human limitations. I'm putting this in different ways. What we call my lifestyle choices are not merely lifestyle choices. They are personal. God takes them personally. They show whose we are. They show even what we are, whether we're a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Yes, the Christian says every day, for her good but for a cause beyond herself. I choose light over darkness, God over Satan, patience over impatience, faith over fear. If we pause here, I wonder what temptation might be wanting you at the moment. Is it to be self-consumed? Is it the endless draw towards more wealth? He who loves money never has money enough. Is it a chasing after happiness? Where do you go for God, uh, other than God, for security, for your happiness, for your contentment, for your sense of purpose? In other words, to use the Bible's language, what are your idols? And how active are you at resisting them? Next time sin is crouching at your door, wanting to have you, consider your history. And Paul describes our history with sin as a sad history. Verse 19, it's a sobering read. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, not sure you'd describe your past that way. It's a sobering description, isn't it? 
So now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. We had a rotten master, a rotten cause, rotten methods, rotten fruit. We've moved on. And so I take it it was with a sense of longing, double-mindedness, that Lot's wife looked back to Sodom and Gomorrah, the city she was leaving, hesitantly, knowing God would destroy it. Why look back? Why flirt with evil or with danger? Why go where there is nothing good? Paul draws all of this together for us so simply in 6.23, a great memory verse, if you haven't got it yet as a memory verse. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, wages are pretty easy to understand. If I work three hours, I can expect three hours' pay. If I sin for a lifetime, I deserve deathly consequences. I reject God with the life he gives me. I deserve to meet his anger when I meet him. That's why the Christian's message is, watch out, dear world. May they hear the only alternative to wages, and that is the gift of God, Jesus. In Jesus, God, the doctor of souls, pays for his patients and even bears their diseases. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Hmm, which master is better in the cold light of day? Your days, your energies are best poured out for whom? Which master? Many years ago, my brother-in-law performed in a play at school, The Servant of Two Masters. And it's funny, it's a comedy. Uh, because trying to serve two masters at the same time isn't easy, particularly if you're not letting one, each master know that you've got another master through the day. And so this hungry servant figures out he'll get more food if he's got two masters at once, if he can just manage it, ar arrange the task, pick something up for someone on the way of doing something else for the other. Is it not the case, dear friends, that this comical situation too closely describes our life while living in the flesh and having our tendency to sin ever there. Our king, his, a great master, his cause, his methods, his fruit, so easily delayed, put aside, ignored for lesser impulses. Until Christ returns, there will always be more than one persuasive voice in our ears. And so we take up crosses, kind of. Unless actively resisting it, we do our discipleship in a very Western Sydney comfortable way. It may be we see our opportunities for community, for good routines, for commitments, for great ministry opportunities, the value of wrestling in prayer, the power of regular hospitality, room to grow as disciples. But there's always another force, wanting mastery. Something stops us, setting time aside in prayer or to sing or for word. Something keeps us from opening our mouths or putting it in the diary or making the phone call 
or cancelling one commitment so that we can take up a better one? What is it? Is it uncertainty? Is it fear? Is it self-preservation? Is it a mix of good and less good things that keep us from the great fruit and benefits, verse 21, the, the holiness, verse 19, that Paul is directing us towards? Do we need a boot camp? Uh, 4.30 tomorrow morning, what do you think? I think it, it might help, but I think that what we need is what God already gives us, his grace, to breathe in the air of his grace. Set free, verse 22. We have life, verse 22. He gives us his grace, verse 23, as a gift for eternal life. To breathe in the air that we're forgiven, saved, children of God forever because of the merits of Jesus. That's where the inspiration for Christian living is. That's where the motivation and the energy lies. God's grace allows us to avoid absorbing Western Christianity when we see it clashes with Jesus. When Jesus' word of Scripture, the sword of the Spirit, does its work, the fire and the hammer of God's word freed from our reluctance, our hesitation, our unbelief, our low expectations of what God might do if and when he shows up. The principle is clear. Who's our master? And Paul's second image is marriage. Now that we're righteous, forgiven, saved by grace, aren't we free to sin? No, because of who your master is. And secondly, because of this concept of marriage. Paul shakes his head again. This time in the example of marriage, chapter 7, 1 to 6. Paul's writing to people who, like a number of us today, had a good grasp of Israel's law. Chapter 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has the authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. In wedding vows, we say, until death do us part. And so, Christians, remember chapter 6, you've died. You've been to your own funeral. You've parted from your old spouse, not because your spouse died, but because joined with Christ, you died to sin. And now here to the obligations of the law, a principle that is both true for the law of Israel, but also I take it true for non-Jews and the law that's on our conscience all the time, telling us what's right and wrong. Here's the spiritual reality that's taken place, verse 4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another. Friends, I still see Christians confused by this, still trying to follow Old Testament law as though it still has a hold on them. You've been, you also died to the law in order that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. That's why in the New Testament we don't have another Ten Commandments or a whole list of rules. It's internationalized. 
The Spirit now works within us as a teacher, showing us how we're to live in all kinds of circumstances and in all kinds of cultures. And notice too, bearing fruit is again in view. Not just being saved, but we're saved to bear fruit, another reason to avoid sin. Now fruitfulness for God, verse 4, replaces bearing fruit for death, verse 5. And so humans don't just go to work, we don't just watch the news, gather at churches, pass the time. There is always one kind of fruit or another being born in our lives. And so Christians are those who are now bearing fruit for God, 621, in holiness, verse 22. And chapter 7, verse 6, Christians are those who serve, we minister, not just exist, not with a million laws, but in the new way of the Spirit who lives in us. We have a new master. We have a greater cause. We have wonderful methods, the fruit of the Spirit, which bears wonderful fruit for the kingdom. And so do you see, friends, the wages of sin is not only death, but also what you could have been. Your fruit, your spiritual blessing, your holiness, your Christian service that changes, even saves the lives of others, whether you're eight years old this morning or 80 years old. Jesus says there's potential that can lead to 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. Yes, you will be in heaven with Christ, Christian. So let that truth motivate you all the more in serving him. Enjoy your release from the law and that question of will I make it or not to serve in the new way of the Spirit. And for some of us today, I take it that might mean big changes God is putting on your conscience. There's a fork in the road, you weren't sure which way to go, and now it's clear it has to be this way, it's God's way. For others, it might be incremental adjustments. It might be returning to a path you were on six months ago or 12 months ago and you find yourself straying from something good. It might just be taking another small step in a good direction. How can we press on well? Well, I take it we can be inspired by all kinds of sources. The chief source, of course, being Jesus himself, how he lived and why. But there are other sources for inspiration. I just finished reading an autobiography uh, by the Melbourne Storm captain, who became the Queensland captain and the Australian captain of the uh, rugby league team, Cameron Smith. He's given over 30 years of his life to football. Uh, football became his master, his cause. It shaped all of his methods in life. And the results were all about winning football matches, which he did a lot of. I couldn't help but look at Cameron's life and be impressed with it and wonder, could I not be equally consumed by a much greater alternative, a greater master, greater cause, greater methods with much greater results? Kids, you might be in primary school or high school. You might look at the teenagers around you, those a few years ahead of you, perhaps those in uni or in the workforce, and you might wonder, how are they dead to sin and alive to God at school? How are they serving in the new way of the Spirit? How do they live as a Christian in the playground or at uni? A Christian I read of this month crashed his father's new Kingswood back in the 1970s, and he didn't know how to break it to his dad. 
And his dad said, it's just a thing. It's just a thing. You're my son. Are you okay? And he said of his dad, who was also happened to be a pastor, he said, my dad, growing up, he gave the gospel legs. I watched him and he gave the gospel legs. I could see how the gospel lives out. Who around you gives the gospel legs? How can you learn from Jesus and the people he's put around you? We don't have a strict code. We don't need more rules. Instead, God has given us his son, his word, his spirit, and his people. Amen.